Hi everyone, my name is Priyanka Vidak. I'm a third year resident at the Harvard Combined Dermatology Residency Program, and I'm here on behalf of Dialogues in Dermatology with Dr. Kroll of Brigham and Women's Hospital talking about psychodermatology. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, uh, my name is David Kroll. I'm a psychiatrist uh, also at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, uh, and I'm glad to be talking with you today. Great. So tell us, what is your interaction with dermatology and kind of what is your take on the entire issue of psychodermatology? I know for us as dermatologists, sometimes these patients with either body dysmorphic disorder or delusions of parasitosis can be really challenging. And I think we all struggle with how exactly to both manage these patients, kind of introduce a psych team, both like introduce psychiatric medications. So what is your overall take and kind of like what tips can you give us? Great. Sure. Um, well, let me actually tell you a little bit more about my clinical work. Mm-hmm. Um, so working um, working in a hospital system, it's um, I obviously wear a number of hats, and so I see encounter patients in a lot of different settings. Um, I'm a consultation liaison trained psychiatrist, so I work primarily in medical settings. Uh, so part of my work is doing um, inpatient CL work, so basically hospitalized patients um, here in an emergency department. Um, and I also do primary care psychiatry, so I have a clinic embedded in primary care, and I see patients there. Um, and so when I encounter patients with um, psychodermatoses, it's in the setting of either they happen to be admitted for a medical problem and this is something that's coming up, um, or they are with working with their primary care doctor and the primary care doctor has been trying to get them to agree to see a psychiatrist a long time. And being in primary care is a lot easier for me for them to see me. Um, so there are a lot fewer barriers to getting to see me. So I, I happen to be, I tend to be the first line of defense uh, for a lot of these encounters. Uh, and so often they'll come to see me um, a little bit reluctantly on behalf of the PCP, um, and I'll take care of it there, and I'll, I'll try to help the primary care doctor manage them. Great, yeah. And do you feel like a lot of the patients by the time, when they're coming to you, are they open this, it sounds like they're open enough to sh- come to psychiatry, first of all, or how do they kind of phrase that with the PCP? Um, so it depends on the encounter. Um, if it's an outpatient setting, it's always entirely voluntary. So mm-hmm. we never try to mislead the patient. We never try to convince them that this is for something different. I think a lot of times, um, especially in residency, yeah. I used to fall into the trap of saying, well, if we just kind of convince the patient this is for sleep, then maybe they'll you know agree to do it. Yeah. Um, as I've gotten more experience, I've really fallen away from that because that ultimately usually doesn't work. Um, and so if it's an outpatient setting especially, they're coming to psychiatry specifically because their primary care doctor wanted them to see psychiatry for the reason of getting a psychiatrist involved in their team for this particular problem. Um, and the patient may not necessarily accept, well, I'm going because I know I have a delusional disorder. They may say, oh, because my primary care doctor thinks I'm delusional. Or my primary care doctor thinks I'm delusional, but also they think that I could benefit from helping out with the anxiety or something like that. So it's pretty transparent. Yeah. Um, in the inpatient setting or the emergency department, it's usually, um, again, it's still voluntary, but they're here um, more of more of a captive audience, not really a captive audience, but they're here anyway, and the psychiatrist comes to them rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so I try to ensure that the primary team has already informed them that psychiatry is coming uh, before I come because it's not a good experience for a patient to be there and then suddenly have a psychiatrist show up and say, you know, your team asked me yeah. to see you and you have no idea why because that, the message they get from that is that I'm crazy or the team thinks mm-hmm. I'm crazy as opposed to a really well thought out introduction to why psychiatry um, should be involved here, which is um, I think to focus on the outcomes rather than um, trying to dispute the etiology. So what, what all, we'll advise teams to say is, 
you know, listen, we've given you this kind of first-line treatment and we've only gotten so far in your outcome. And I don't really see a clear path forward using only the tools that we have at our immediate disposal. And this is why I want to get um, another other kinds of clinicians involved mm-hmm. to get a bigger picture view and see if we can move a little bit more, uh, move further on towards, uh, move further on, on the outcomes that we want to get. And that's likely to include psychiatry. It's likely to include other things in addition to psychiatry. So it's not just like, let's see, have you see a psychiatrist? Because again, that, that kind of referral can be perceived as very loaded yeah. for pa- by patients. Um, but rather, we want to get some other medical specialists on board and approach this for more angles to make sure that we are moving you forward or advancing your outcome mm-hmm. uh, as best we can. I think that's some really good points is just trying to make sure that it's a team-based approach, making sure that you still maintain kind of a presence in the patient's life. And it sounds like in the inpatient setting that's happening. Yeah. And I think as dermatologists, it's something that we could also strive to do is still see them as well to yeah. kind of maintain more of that therapeutic relationship that we're providing as well as the other kind of dermatologic aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, it's also it also helps in the outpatient setting when I'm embedded in the primary care clinic. And I think right. that a lot of patients will say, um, you know, I don't want to go to a psychiatry clinic because that means I'm a crazy person, mm-hmm. as opposed to we have consultants, various consultants that come to this clinic and they help us out with some of the specialty stuff and there's a psychiatrist right here. Yeah. Um, that's known to decrease the stigma associated with a psychiatry referral. Um, I'm not aware of any dermatology clinics that have embedded psychiatry or visiting psychiatry. I know mm-hmm. the dermatology clinic here would love to have that because this issue comes up a lot. Yeah. And it's actually sort of a notorious difficulty in dermatology clinics yeah. that's really hard to get referrals to psychiatry from dermatology mm-hmm. uh, but that does make it you know having it being embedded in primary care does make it a little bit easier and that is still a tool in the arsenal for a lot of clinicians yeah. um, uh, even in especially clinics they can often triage through primary care and that's a really good point because I think a lot of us think of like our combined clinics for like oncoderm we have the oncologist there and it's a good point that if they do it through primary care Ideally, in the ideal world, we would have the psych Durham clinic as well. But I agree that maybe the primary care is like a great way to kind of combine the visits together. Um, and then what other kind of tips or advice on trying to kind of create that common ground with the patient? How do you come to that? Yeah. Um, so common ground is actually a really good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, because really what you have to recognize as a clinician is that uh, you both have an agenda. You and the patient, you have an agenda, the patient has an agenda. Uh, you have goals, the patient has goals. And your job is really to find where those goals overlap. And um, most of the time that's the case. You know, I think that there are going to be rare circumstances where the patient only has a goal that's not consistent with good health outcomes. You know, for example, the patient just wants is drug-seeking, and that's the only reason that they're there. Um, you know, and in those cases, when you have no shared goals whatsoever, then treatment is not going to be helpful in that case. Um, and those are the kinds of situations where you think, okay, probably the risk-benefit ratio really favors not treatment, mm-hmm. rather than trying to create a treatment yeah. around where there are no shared goals. Most of the time, it's not that clear-cut. Most of the time, there are some overlapping goals. And when you find yourself butting heads with patients, it's not because you don't share goals, but rather you don't share you don't have the same priorities around those goals. Yeah. And so the patient might be prioritizing, I want immediate relief right now, and the clinician is saying, I want, um, I want to have long-term sustainable health outcomes. And that's, that's where you find yourself butting heads. Um, so in a case like a psychodermatosis, mm-hmm. you know, your job as a clinician, as a dermatologist, is you want the patient to have optimal health. You want the patient to um, certainly have healthy skin, 
um, that's a specialty. You also, you want the patient to be happy with the care. You want the patient not to be exposed to treatments that are going to do them long-term harm or short-term harm. And you also want the patient to function well within the medical system in general so that um, health is promoted at all stages. Mm -hmm. The patient's coming in with a number of goals. The patient's gonna want healthy skin. The patient's usually gonna want to have generally good health. The patient's gonna wanna have a good experience. They may also have this idea that they want some sort of diagnosis validated, mm -hmm. um, or they may have some other um, thing that something else that they're really prioritizing or gunning for that's not consistent with your uh, that, that you don't really see as a problem yes. and i think a good example of that is having this certain diagnosis mm -hmm. validated like i want you to tell me that i have a parasite in my skin yeah and or that there are bugs crawling on my skin and then i want you to give me um you know insecticides or exactly. antiparasitics mm -hmm. you know and your job is to say okay you know i my priority is not to not to kill the bugs on your skin because I don't believe there are bugs on your skin, but my job is to really focus around, let's try to focus on having, you having healthy skin and good general health in general. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to pause and say that, um, especially, so we think about psychodermatosis, there's a lot of different ways, that, that could, that's an umbrella term that mm -hmm. can a lot of different things. I think the most common thing that we do see is delusional parasitosis. Yep. Um, it's important to acknowledge that that's not a unifying diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Not all delusional parasitosis is equal. There are people who have what's purely what we call a delusional disorder. So in psychiatry, we have this concept of delusional disorder. You are uh, preoccupied with a specific delusion, and that permeates a lot of aspects of your life, and it can be very disruptive to your life that you're really stuck on this delusion. And it, there are multiple different kinds of delusions, and some of those delusions are what we call somatic delusions, so okay. delusions specifically about a health issue. Mm -hmm. And that may be that um, my guts are rotting from the inside. It may be... Uh, a number of health issues, but a common one is I have a parasite in my skin. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the same thing as somebody who comes in with dementia. And right. it's actually not uncommon for people to develop delusional parasitosis or other delusions when they have dementia, and that's going to be treated very differently. Uh, we actually do see a lot of delusional parasitosis emerge with substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And um, that presents in a similar way to delusional disorder, and substance use disorders can precipitate other delusional disorders. Um, but that's going to look different, especially if it's a substance that they're injecting and they're going to be having reactions in their skins. That's going to look very different from if the only reactions are skin or from picking. Mm -hmm. And then you have something that's like, you know, more Jelen's disease yeah. or one of these sort of, um, I don't even really know what to call it, um, but there are a category of disease states that are, we think, most consistent with sort of a mass delusional disorder or a shared delusional disorder. Mm -hmm. It's a delusional disorder that's, that's common enough that's common and has been validated externally by a number of resources, even if we don't think of them as medical experts. So Morgellons disease, to catch people up, is, is this belief, it's a type of delusional parasitosis, specifically where people present with this belief in having parasites in their skin and they mm -hmm. come in with things they claim to have been pulled out of their skin. They usually show up, they bring them in plastic bags, but they, when they look at them under the microscope, it's like a hair or it's like a piece of lint or something yeah. that was, um, some sort of artifact that happened to have been pulled out of that. The problem is that there's like there are associations of people with Morgellons disease and resources and websites mm -hmm. uh, claiming that this is a real disease right. that doctors are just failing to treat. And so there's a lot of validation, especially online, that people will have this. And uh, there are advocacy groups for Morgellons disease. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a much um, more complex, multifaceted problem than just having pure delusional parasitosis. Uh, you know, similar situations like chronic Lyme disease, for example. Mm -hmm. So there, there are many people who think that they have um, these problems related to chronic Lyme disease, and um, there are a lot of external sources, including some physicians, that um, are willing to advocate for people who have chronic yeah. Lyme disease, and yet there's no scientific evidence that 
exposure to Lyme disease is related or causes these kinds of um, chronic long-term issues, mm-hmm. or that antibiotics are helpful, but they're commonly seeking antibiotics over and over and over again, and often they'll find a doctor who can prescribe them. And so Morgellons disease yeah. is, is somewhat parallel to that. No. Um, so, but if you think about it from a pure delusional disorder, mm-hmm. uh, and now I've actually lost my train of thought. No, I can't yeah. remember where we, where, where were we before. Yeah. Where we no, we were just talking about the, just like how you kind of approach it differently for the different delusional yeah. disorders. Yeah. And if there's anything that you, yeah. Um, like as a psychiatrist? Yeah. Okay. All right. And kind of finding the common ground. Right, finding the common ground. That's yeah. right. Um, so if someone comes in with um, a pure delusional mm-hmm. disorder and they're coming in, you know, their perspective is, I have this um, belief that, like, so I have, I have a skin eruption mm-hmm. and I'm having some other symptoms, maybe pain, maybe itching. Um, in addition to the eruption, I'm very upset with it. I'm very preoccupied with it. I'm coming to health appointments trying to get treated for it. Um, and I want to do anything I can to both calm down these symptoms and um, kill the parasite. And also, I want to have better health outcomes in general, and I think this is tied to the health outcomes. You, know, you as the clinician, you're going to be seeing this patient, and you're going to say, okay, this patient does have a skin eruption. I want to keep, usually there's going to be a skin eruption, but I want to keep under control. I don't see evidence of an infection that's causing it, and so I don't think antiparasitic agents or antibiotics are going to help be helpful. Um, I definitely don't want you taking insecticides or other pesticides yeah. or rubbing pesticides on your skin because that's going to make things worse and cause other healthcare problems down the line. So where you can find common ground is some of the easy stuff. Well, things that are going to calm the skin eruption. Mm-hmm. Likely there are things you're going to be off, off, be able to offer that patient's going to calm down some of that skin eruption. Um, you're also going to want to focus, though, on... Um, you're also going to want to focus on how do you prevent other harm to be coming from this? And how do I, how do, I do no harm? So I want to make sure I'm not providing care that's going to harm the patient just mm-hmm. to make the patient happy. Um, I also want the patient not to be engaging in care that's going to be harmful to him or her. And that, again, commonly what that is, is they might do something with insecticides, like rub mm-hmm. it on their skin or take insecticides. And I want to make sure that the patient is um, aware of the dangers, that the patient's discouraged about that, that we're on the same team here, but that we're saying, you know, okay, I'm not, I don't think it's a parasite. My evidence says that I think it's probably this not rather than that. But if you are right, and it does turn out to be a parasite, I want you to know that rubbing insecticide on your skin is not going to help. It's actually going to make things worse. It's going to make your skin more vulnerable to other infections, and et cetera. And so you can kind of work with them around, okay, here's mm-hmm. what we can all agree on, and here's what we can all agree is good for your health. We're just not necessarily agreeing on um, whether or not I'm giving you an antiparasitic yeah. agent right now, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, and that does. And do you feel like sometimes... I feel like I've had like a string of these where the patient really wants to see like infectious disease. Do you feel like it's okay for us to be like referring? Because I feel like in some ways you're just kind of seeking and seeing more providers then, but is that a good way to deal with it or? You know, I I would frame this from the perspective of the patient is often going to try to get you to deliver, and this is true of a lot of patients for a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons, but may try to get you to deliver bad care. Um, for some various reasons, it may right. be due to poor understanding of the healthcare system, you know, misaligned priorities, secondary gain, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be many opportunities for you to provide bad care to the patient in order to satisfy the patient. And your job is to try to avoid doing harm to the patient. Mm-hmm. And so for primary care doctors, for example, I'll often say a really good example is patients are going to want to get something that makes them feel better, even if it's not the best thing for their health, like a benzodiazepine. Mm-hmm. And you as a clinician will offer them this treatment because it makes them feel a little better and you think it keeps them engaged in treatment, right? And 
I think of that as actually like a carrot. Like you're giving a yeah. carrot to a horse. And the reason that you give a carrot to a horse is because you're really leading the horse somewhere. And, mm-hmm. and if the carrot's not that dangerous and you're getting something out of it and it actually meaningfully advances the patient's health in a positive way, then it's reasonable to offer carrots to some, mm-hmm. some, uh, some extent. If you're giving carrots just for the sake of giving patients carrots um, and, and the patient just eating the carrots but not going anywhere, then, then you're right. really not helping out the patient. And so like there's, there's bad care and there's really bad care. There's care that you think might not necessarily be totally indicated but probably is not going to do harm to the patient. Right. Um, and so if, if that might be something like an infectious diseases consult, well, that can waste some clinician time. It can... Maybe. Right. Uh, it, it uses clinician time. Yeah. I say it uses clinician time. Mm-hmm. Um, it costs some money. In what way is that going to advance the care? Um, if that can advance the care in some capacity and maybe improve your relationship with the patient or you think it might work to satisfy the patient or, the, or it might even actually say, answer some questions you have about how you might manage some aspect about this or making sure that you're doing the referral workup, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense to do an infectious diseases consult. I think it's when you find that the patient's asking for the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. or you see how this really isn't advancing the care, or the only thing they're getting out of the out from the interaction with the healthcare system is worse health rather than better right. health. Um, that's when you want to say, okay, this might do more harm than good for the patient. Mm-hmm. This isn't helpful. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's that probably the most common one is going to be like if they want to say like, you know, they want eight infectious disease yes. consultations then at some point. Like at some point, yeah. okay, this isn't helping anymore and, and we need to think about something different. Yeah, no, that's very true. And then anytime during this relationship, do you ever try to, are we supposed to confront them directly? Like as, as you try to go forward, do you have, have you ever found it to be successful to have the dermatologist or the primary care just say like, I think that a lot of this is... Or what's the best way to phrase that? Yeah, well, so I would say that, like, you can confront without being confrontational, mm-hmm. right? You know, you say you, you, it's important to be straightforward about your opinion and say this is what I think it is and this is what I think is going to be helpful. Um, that's different from saying to a patient, you're crazy, mm-hmm. you're delusional, this is, you know, this is something that is a psychiatric illness. What you're saying essentially is, uh, I actually don't think this is a parasite. That's not what I think you have. I think that's this, and I think it's going to clear up if you do this and if you can avoid picking. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you can try this treatment for a while and see how it goes? And try to work with a patient within the within the parameters that the patient's yeah. giving you uh, as a doctor. And if the patient says, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm telling you this is a parasite, you can say, you know, I've got to say, like, I, I hear what you're saying. I that's not what I think it is. I know that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I know this is what you're saying. I think from, from the whole clinical picture, that's not what I think it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Um, so here's why I want to treat this this way. And that's very different from saying it's not a parasite yeah. or a delusion. You have a delusion. Yeah, no, no. I think it definitely a nuance, but a, definitely a different interaction one way or the other. Yeah. So it's very true. And then um, just moving to the medications themselves. So I think, you know, in dermatology, we're, we occasionally will be using psychiatric medications, both for itch, for delusions of serocytosis, for other things. Yeah. Or can you just give some pearls on like what to look up for? I know in the elderly, sometimes we get more nervous with certain ones. If there's any, just like an overarching view yeah, of what exactly. you can do. Yeah. I think that, um, well, so for itching medicines, so often we'll give antihistamines. Mm-hmm. Um, antihistamines, especially Benadryl and hydroxyzine, tend to be um, very anticholinergic and they can be sedating and yeah. they can lead to confusion. And so it's something that especially if people are have cognitive impairment or if they are um, elderly, uh, you have to worry about anticholinergic effects and how that can negatively affect cognition. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of patients who will take things like that for anxiety and I find that some of them feel like they tolerate it great and some of them just makes them feel sluggish and they don't really yeah. like the way it makes them feel. And so I'm, I'm very op- upfront with them about, um, I don't know if you're gonna like the way this makes you feel or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's someone who's elderly, I tend to steer a little bit more clear if anything's gonna have a strong anticholinergic properties. 
You know, as far as um, antipsychotics mm-hmm. for delusional parasitosis, you know, um, I'm always impressed when a non-psychiatrist is comfortable <laughs> prescribing them just because there are a lot of side effects from it. And it's, it's for, I mean, for the most part, especially in low doses, they're safe. Um, but a lot of patients are pretty resistant to taking them. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stigma around giving them. And so, um, but in, in dermatology, again, I think you're more often confronted with patients who have psychotic disorders and who aren't yeah. seeing a psychiatrist and you're sort of stuck managing it. Um, often, uh, literature will tell you pimazide is the antipsychotic mm-hmm. to give and psychodermatoses. And yeah. I'm not actually sure if that's because it's better or really just because that happens to be the one that was studied in this population. It's something that um, I've actually never prescribed pimazide. It's one of those oh, really? older <laughs> antipsychotics that yeah. is just not something that I would ever give to somebody with uh, primary psychiatric illness just because I've there's so many other different antipsychotics, and culturally we just haven't done yeah. it. Um, you know, any any of the atypical antipsychotics can have some benefit. Mm-hmm. I always think about when I'm starting an antipsychotic, I want to think about the side effects. And um, there are a number of categories of side effects that are um, important. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the three that I'll sort of talk about from the um, that are most important to think about are one, um, QC prolongation is an issue two neurological type side effects. So this has to do with um, uh, dopamine activity and dopamine blockade and causing things like dystonia um, and tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia is really important because uh, this progresses very, very slowly and insidiously over time. Mm. And if you don't catch it early um, and nip it in the bud, um, it will progress and it doesn't always go away when you stop the treatment. So it's really important to have that conversation with the patient. And the third, and, and, and when you have that conversation with a patient, you have to include the statement and it might not be reversible. Yes, yeah. Uh, and you need to do that in a way that doesn't necessarily shift all the focus of that, mm-hmm. uh, which takes some practice. Um, and the third is the metabolic side effects. Um, the metabolic side effects being pretty dramatic weight gain in a lot of patients, in, and uh, even without weight gain, a higher risk of diabetes, cholesterol problems, mm-hmm. um, and just metabolic problems in general that will lead to um, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular problems down the road. Yeah. Um, so, um, they're pretty heavy-duty medications that require a lot of monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to be able to talk about those side effects with the patient before you start so they understand. You also want to do your due diligence of monitoring for those kinds of tests. So th- there's something called an AIMS exam. It's a movement test where you really just, um, you can look these up on the internet. It's really easy to find. Mm-hmm. It's just a series of rating scales, um, rating the, the severity of every movement, usually at zero when you start the patient uh, mm-hmm. on a treatment. Then you want to do that every year. Okay. Um, you want to check uh, A1C, lipid panel, um, every year. You want to get at least one EKG at baseline just to see if they have QC prolongation mm-hmm. at baseline. If they have higher QTC prolongation, you want to, um, if they're, they're higher risk for QTC prolongation, you want to do um, a more regular routine monitoring, although there's no standard for how you're supposed to monitor. Psychiatrists don't generally agree on that, but mm-hmm. um, you want to be aware that they're on a QTC prolonging medication. And then you want to look at the patient and say, well, what what's going to be most important for the patient? So there's the older generation of antipsychotics like Haldol, mm-hmm. and one of those is Pimazide. Um, older generation antipsychotics tend to have a higher risk of neurological problems right. and some of the uh, QTC prolongation, although that varies between agents, and less of a, an association with metabolic problems. Uh, so if weight gain's a real issue, but um, you're not so worried about movement disorders mm-hmm. um, or, or dystonia for this particular patient, you might actually go with a typical or first generation antipsychotic, as opposed to if you have a patient who um, you're less concerned necessarily about weight gain or diabetes, specifically in that patient, you might be more likely to go with an atypical okay. because they tend to be, atypical is another word for second generation, mm-hmm. uh, because they tend to be tolerated better. Yeah. And so probably the one, um, if I just want to give a basic antipsychotic for this 
patient population, I would say let's try Risperdal 0.5 milligrams once a day. Mm -hmm. uh, you can titrate that up to one milligram, maybe two milligrams. I probably wouldn't go further than that. Um, although, again, every patient's different, and some yeah. patients will tolerate up to six milligrams, uh, especially if they have something like schizophrenia, which um, usually is not going to be the cause of delusional parasitosis. Um, the other option would be if the psychosis is really mild and they're not sleeping at all, Seroquel is what I use, Quetiapine. Mm -hmm. um, Quetiapine is what I would use um, because it's so sedating. And so you yeah. can get by with, you know, a, a 25 do milligram dose of Quetiapine is actually has a very low potency at the dopamine receptor, mm. but is going to be very sedating. And so you end up having a really deep night's sleep uh, with just a mild effect of antipsychotic. Yeah, that's good to know. And then if something doesn't work, it, would you change within those classes of antipsychotics, or does that just mean to move on to something else? Um, I'm sure, like, we probably... Actually, before that, let me say one yeah. more thing about antipsychotic. Uh, the other antipsychotic that I, I would... Um, think about um, early on is, is aripiprazole. Mm -hmm. um, aripiprazole is really more of a third generation antipsychotic, but one of the nice things about it is it's much less likely to cause QTC prolongation and metabolic issues. And I say this in the sense, like the literature will tell us like, oh, this doesn't seem to cause metabolic issues or QTC prolongation. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, there are patients who have gained a lot of weight on yeah. aripiprazole. It doesn't really work for everybody. So I wouldn't say it's a, a slam dunk and definitely won't cause weight gain. Um, but aripiprazole, if someone is otherwise healthy and doesn't need anything specific, um, I will often lead with that one, um, usually maybe five milligrams, mm -hmm. maybe two milligrams, um, uh, and just to see if that if that works because it's less likely to cause the other problems. Yeah, no, that's really that's good to know. And then how long before you kind of can appreciate any change? Would it um, like four to six weeks or? You hopefully less than that. Okay. Um, you know, I think that again, everybody responds differently. Mm -hmm. Generally, for psychosis, you start to see some response relatively quickly. So within a week, I'd want to see oh. something. Mm -hmm. um, some people do find more of like a prolonged four to six week trial is going to be more efficacious, especially with something like a delusional disorder. And effective treatment of a delusional disorder does not always mean that the patient wakes up one day and just renounces the delusion that mm -hmm. it's gone. It's not a problem. It's really that you want to see the patient become less preoccupied with the delusion. And it takes less of a central role in the, like, central... It, mm -hmm. it becomes less central to yes. um, the patient's daily life. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you look at somebody or talk to somebody who's had a treated delusional disorder, often what you'll find is not that if you, if you ask them directly about the delusion, they might sort of say, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. That doesn't mean they don't believe it anymore. But, but it's just they're able to talk about other things and focus on other things and maybe... Uh, live their lives better. Yeah, and more subtle than, as you were saying, straight yeah. up denouncing it. Well, yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, just as we're wrapping up here, do you want to go over just any, like, some key takeaway points? I think we talked about a lot of different and really important nuances that you mentioned, including mm -hmm. the common ground, and then just kind of what kind of a treatment response to expect from your patients. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to emphasize for all of our listeners? Yeah, I think just the take-home points would be, one, your position as a a clinician or a science-minded person is to say not you're wrong you're crazy but rather uh, this isn't this doesn't add up to this diagnosis for me and this is not what I think it is here's what I think it is and that's a much more sort of balanced mm -hmm. approach that you would actually have with any other patient around a, a, yeah. a, a question or a diagnostic disagreement um, and so the idea of getting psychiatry involved is just to have another uh, set of eyes and another perspective to see if we could be helpful in a different way um, rather than sort of pushing it out here and say go to see psychiatry instead um, you know, when you think about looking at common goals, usually you can still accomplish something. Your goal is not necessarily always to make everything perfect for the patient. You can't always make the delusion go away, but you can, as a clinician, mm -hmm. advance that person's health and try to move this, keep this patient uh, from doing harm and try to make things as, as healthy as possible for him or her. Um, and then just try to avoid being sucked into the pattern of providing bad care 
hope, with this idea that's going to hope to yeah. help and engage in good care. You know, you can you can certainly do things that you don't necessarily think you don't feel strongly are indicated, or you have some doubts that are indicated if you think that overall this could still advance care in some way. But if it's actually doing harm to the patient um, or really not helping the patient stay involved in care or stay or advance in mm-hmm. care, um, it's probably not worth providing that care. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I definitely learned a lot. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time of your afternoon. And thank all of you listeners for listening again to Dialogues in Dermatology. Thanks so much.